0: A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that they did, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. It's great to have you with us. And we are currently looking at the story of Jonah, a story that famously captures the minds and imaginations of children, but Equally captures the minds and imaginations of adults as we consider the depth of God's grace which is on display in these short but very action packed 58 verses. In Jonah chapter 1, we establish that sin is running from God and that grace is God pursuing us. And we as people have a tendency, as Jonah did, to run from God's call, God's word, and God's heart. But God comes after us relentlessly. Sometimes his grace feels confronting, confusing. Sometimes God's grace comes in the shape of a storm. Then in chapter 2, in absolute desperation and distress from the bottom of the ocean inside a giant fish, Jonah prays. And there he meets God. He encounters God from the gates of Sheol. He experiences salvation. And just like with Jonah, God can rescue us from our self-inflicted prison. He comes to us in the midst of our mess, and saves us there. He doesn't remove the consequences of our actions, but he journeys with us. And that's what Jesus has done for us through those consequences. And now today we arrive at Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah's ministry in Nineveh. Chapter 3 is somewhat like hitting the restart button. Try as he may, Jonah could not outrun God. So having delivered him onto dry land, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Now there is no mention this time around about the wickedness of the Ninevites. At this point, God's interest seems to be more about the obedience of, of the prophet he says to Jonah when you get there I will give you the message you are to proclaim in verse 3 we read that Jonah obeyed Jonah finally does what God commanded him and after personally experiencing God's redeeming grace Jonah is obedient to God's call on his life We saw last week that Jonah found himself after all his running at death's door in Sheol, inside the fish. Jonah calls out to God and God saves him in that place. And now Jonah has been given a second chance, a new life, a fresh opportunity to re-engage with the mission that God had given him. And this time around, Jonah doesn't seem to hesitate at all. He goes straight to Nineveh and preaches the message God gave him. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. To be frank, Jonah's message is short, vague and offensive. He never mentions their sins. He doesn't even mention God. He only mentions their imminent doom. The outcome of this message is nothing short of a miracle. Chapter 3 Can be encapsulated in three words overthrown, repentance, and compassion. These three words describe the actions and the movement of the text that includes Jonah's preaching, the Ninevites turning from their evil ways, and God's compassionate response. Let's take a bit of a closer look at each of these three words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Hebrew word hapak, translated overthrown, has a dual meaning. It can either mean to turn over, destroy, destruction, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or it can mean turn around, as in repentance, a new order, a new structure, a new way of things. So the word carries this dual or double meaning all the way out, all the way throughout Scripture. Overthrown can mean destruction, but it can also mean repentance. The Ninevites seem to understand overthrown as primarily meaning destruction. But there is also an acknowledgement, particularly from the king, that this word of destruction also carries with it the possibility of Yahweh's mercy if they repent. And so with the off chance that God might show mercy, we read that a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. God sends Jonah to Nineveh in the hope that the Ninevites will be overthrown to a new way of life through their repentance. Jonah, on the other hand, proclaims this dual message of being overthrown in the hope that they will be destroyed and that the archenemy of Israel will be annihilated. And according to Jonah, this is what they deserved and this is what a just God ought to do. He ought to punish those who are evil and wicked and rebellious towards him. But God, in his incredible mercy, withholds judgment for as long as possible. His heart was not to destroy Nineveh, but to see the people stop their wicked ways and turn to him in repentance. Therefore, it could be fair to say that God's message for Nineveh was not so much a message of destruction, but in fact, an invitation to repent. Amazingly, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the least to the greatest, put on sackcloth. It is a real miracle that the Ninevites believed God. That's another tiny little detail. It doesn't say they believed Jonah, They believed God. It was very clearly God's message that Jonah was proclaiming. But don't forget these were Israel's worst enemies, the most unlikely people to repent, uh, to believe in Yahweh and receive his compassion and forgiveness. In Jonah 3, we are presented a picture of what genuine repentance looks like. Firstly, genuine repentance involves Instant action. Having heard Jonah's message, the Ninevites respond immediately by putting on sackcloth and fasting. To fast and wear sackcloth were ancient ways of mourning. And the urgency of the people's response is quite remarkable. Clearly, they were overcome with a deep sense of guilt and remorse, so much so that they dressed in sackcloth and began to fast. These two actions are symbolically powerful. There is a humbling sense of seeking to reduce one's sense of self-importance and demonstrate true remorse. Amazingly, the king follows suit and reinforces what the people had already initiated. But he ups the ante and includes all the livestock as well. Many commentators suggest that it would have been at least a 40-day fast, which is pretty incredible. They would have had to have had something, I'm sure, to survive. But we're not just talking about a skipping breakfast and lunch kind of situation here, or even a 40-hour famine. It's a significant fast a significant sense of remorse and penitence. And what's amazing is the king, even in just a couple of verses, we see the movement of downward progression of self with the king. He rose from his throne, a place of power and control. He removed his royal robes, a symbol of wealth and status he covered himself with sackcloth reducing himself to a lowly and most undignified social position and then he sat down in the dust a great place of hopelessness he does all of this right away real and genuine repentance is not an I'll deal with it later Approach. It's not the best of intentions that never amount to anything. Real repentance requires immediate action. And immediate action reflects a heart that is contrite and is wanting to seek change. Secondly, real repentance involves humbling. One'self, for the Ninevites, this meant ashes and mourning. It involved sackcloth and brokenness. This really is quite an amazing picture, particularly when we think of the king. The king would have been an incredibly proud and and arrogant individual. This is what we know of the Ninevites. They thought of themselves as the world superpower. Remember those big, crazy walls they had that you could fit three chariots along. It was all about how good they were. So you can only imagine what the king of such a people was like. And yet what we see here is an amazing picture of humility. There is no sense of pride in his attitude. He has been completely stripped of all arrogance, of all ego. He lowers himself under the hand of Almighty God. And he recognises himself as a sinner in need of God's mercy. I'm reminded of the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. True repentance involves completely humbling ourselves. True repentance always involves total humility, because repentance acknowledges our brokenness before God. Real and genuine repentance involves instant action. It involves humbling ourselves before God. And thirdly, real repentance involves mourning sin. Mourning our sin means seeing it as God sees it, abhorrent It means recognizing that our sins sent Jesus to the cross. The price for sin was Jesus. Sin separates us from God and makes us less of who God made us to be. To mourn our sin is to acknowledge the seriousness of it and to acknowledge the great lengths at which God went to by sending his son Jesus to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. The third word that summarizes chapter 3 and completes the three-part movement of message, repentance, forgiveness is compassion. God's move towards compassion for the Ninevites is what Jonah had suspected would happen. Jonah knows that God's judgment always implies the possibility of mercy. Even when the language of judgment sounds absolute, there is still the possibility that God may relent. Compassion is a primary attribute of God. When it comes to his reputation, it seems that more than just about anything else, God wants to be known as a God of mercy. And compassion. And he is known as one who is prepared to prolong judgment for as long as possible so that as many as possible will have the chance to repent and receive his mercy. And this is exactly what Jonah can't handle. In Jonah's mind, the compassionate response is not the just response. And it infuriates him. You see, Jonah's all about justice. But God's justice is a better justice than our human understanding of justice. You see, God will not bend in his unyielding love this beautiful verse in Ezekiel 18.32, which declares, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God deeply desires to be reconciled with his creation. No matter how evil or wicked a person may be, the reality is that they have been created in the image of God God will go to great lengths indeed God has gone to extraordinary lengths to win people's hearts back to himself as I mentioned last Sunday the story of Jonah is not so much about Jonah as it is about the mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness of God and chapter 3 fills us with hope Because here we see people of the most wicked and evil kind receiving the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God, having repented and turned from their evil ways. The difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3 of Jonah is obedience. Jonah's obedience In chapter 1, Jonah is disobedient. He runs. In chapter 3, however, he is obedient. He goes to Nineveh and does what God asks of him. Subsequently, Jonah's obedience leads to incredible fruitfulness. And the fruit that God desires is repentant sinners. And if that's the measure of the fruitfulness that God desires... And what we see, resulting from Jonah's obedience, is incredible fruitfulness. It's probably one of the most vivid um, pictures of fruitfulness in all scripture. We've got an entire nation of people, or group of people, repenting and turning to God. It's what God longs for, is for people to repent and turn to him. Now Jonah can take no credit for this miraculous occurrence that takes place in Nineveh. He only preaches the message that God gives him. It wasn't his words that made any difference. As the writer says, it was God's words that the people responded to and it was God's words that caused them to turn and to repent. But Jonah's obedience is a critical element in the people hearing God's words, isn't it? Until Jonah obeyed, the Ninevites didn't hear God's message or God's heart. And this is the incredible thing about God. that Even though he doesn't need to, in his wisdom and grace, he chooses to work through very ordinary Reluctant, broken, everyday people like Jonah. Like you. And like me. He involves us in his grand project of reconciling creation to himself. That is his heart. That's what he longs for. And the big question that the book of Jonah asks us is do you share God's heart? <laughs> God wants obedience. When Jonah was obedience, when Jonah was obedient, God moved with power, and the whole city was transformed. God equally wants our obedience. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14:23 to 24. Jesus replied, "'Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me.'" Jesus says, "'If you love me, you will obey my teaching.'" See, God most desires us, his children, to express our love to him through our obedience to him. You could say that obedience is God's love language, it's how he best receives our love. And that's why Jesus placed such a strong emphasis on connecting his love of the Father with his obedience to the Father. This is especially highlighted in John's Gospel. There's an intimacy and a depth of invitation that we, are in, that we are invited to see of the relationship between Jesus and his Father in the Gospel of John. I think of the high priestly prayer. No other Gospel writer gives us that kind of insight. We're actually and able to look and listen into a prayer that Jesus has with his father there's this incredible sense of intimacy and in chapter 8 Jesus talks about completing the work god gave him he talks about not seeking glory for himself but seeking glory for the father and even in the garden of gethsemane Jesus prays not my will but yours be done and so the way that Jesus expresses love to the father is through obedience to his will submission to his will Jonah was given a message to proclaim to the great city of Nineveh What about us I don't know if I'd go so far as to say the great city of Gosford but God has given us a message to proclaim to the city in which we are a part of to our neighbours our family and friends who don't know him and as we discussed in week one we can so easily like Jonah run from the great commission the call to share the life-changing message of Jesus with others Matthew 28 18 to 20 then Jesus came to them all and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. You see, what happens when we've been baptized When we've been saved, what does God desire from baptized, saved disciples? He desires obedience to His teaching. It's right there. Obedient disciples is what God longs for, it's what He wants. And then Acts eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see the parallel between Jonah's mission and our mission? We've been given the command. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the message that Jesus is Lord Jonah was sent to share a message that had the ability to life-change those who heard. And we too have been sent with a life-changing message of Jesus to proclaim to our neighbours, to our city. And our call is to demonstrate through word and deed that our God reigns, that Jesus is King and desires all people to receive his salvation. The question is, how obedient are we being with this task. It's a challenge for all of us. May Jonah 3 be an encouragement and a challenge to us that God blesses obedience and that obedience leads to fruitfulness. The fruitfulness that God desires. Let's spend this time now praying that God would give us obedient hearts, that God would give us opportunities to naturally share the life-changing message of Jesus. And this is exactly what we're going to do at the upper room tomorrow night. So whilst I'm going to spend a moment now praying, if God is convicting you, if there is a sense in your spirit that you need to be more courageous, more obedient in taking the life-changing message of Jesus to your world, to your friends and family and neighbours, And I invite you to come and be a part of what's going to happen tomorrow night. We're going to be really intentionally praying into this, that we would be a people, that we would be a church that is known for its love primarily through sharing the life-changing message of Jesus through word and deed. So would you join me now as we pray? It's convicting for us, Lord, when we look at a picture of Jesus, the perfect son, emphasizing the importance of obedience to you. And I just pray now that we might truly understand your heart for us, and what it is, and what it means, and what it looks like to be obedient. I'm so mindful that that word is quite a loaded word. And perhaps for some of us, it's a word that we want to disassociate ourselves from. Maybe we've been forced into obedience without the love that it requires. And yet we see that obedience to your word is what you desire from your people and your followers. So help us to understand what it is that you truly desire and what that looks like for each of our lives. We so often associate obedience as something that only children need to act upon, but... As adults, as followers of you, you're calling for our obedience. So I just pray that you might soften our hearts and give us your words. Thank you that it's not about us, just as it wasn't about Jonah, that you will work in and through us if we're prepared to obey what it is that you have for us to do. So we just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us, would fill us with courage, would fill us with fresh zeal and and vision and passion for sharing your message with those who you put us into contact with, who don't yet know you. I just pray that you would remove fear and control and replace that with trust and peace. Trust in your will and peace in your will. Thank you, God, for this time and the opportunity to reflect again on your word. May we not just be hearers of your word. May we be doers also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.